Welcome, everyone. This is another episode of the Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate black culture through its cinema by reviewing and discussing black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. My name is James, and I'm joined by... Andre. Lauren. And Ryan. Uh, And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Finding Forrester, the movie that was released in ye old 2000, starring the now late great Sean Connery, F. Murray Abraham, Anna Paquin, Buster Rhymes, who I think might have been making his film debut, and Rob Brown. So this movie, just as a, a quick summary, is not really a coming of age movie, but it's it's a mentor mentorship type movie um, with possibly the roles reversed. Pretty interesting. It's not something that I had seen before. And I want to quickly do a round robin of what everyone thought before we get into some more of the more of the details. I'll start with you, Lauren. You know, one of my favorite movie quotes is from uh, 10 Things I Hate About You when they're saying, I know you can be overwhelmed. I know you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? And that basically describes how I feel about this movie. I'm just whelmed. I'm going to leave it at that. I think it's okay to be whelmed sometimes. <laughs> Just going to leave it there. Just well. <laughs> Andre, what about you? For me, coming into this, this was one of my all-time favorite movies. And I had forgotten quite a bit. <laughs> like the weird intro to the movie, which just kind of threw me off. Uh, but yeah, I, I love this movie. This is, like I said, this is one of my favorites. Of all time. <laughs> I will say that the intro made me wonder whether I had clicked on the wrong movie. At first, like, I, I actually, like, exited out of the player, went back into it. Like, okay, this is what I think it is, correct? I I had the realization that a lot of what I felt like I was seeing was sort of like a black version of Goodwill Hunting. Uh, yes. but But younger. And, uh, Andre, you'll have to clarify this for me, but I want to say that when I was searching IMDb, it, might, it has a link to that movie. Like, it's the same director. It's the same or, director. Or something. Yes. But it turns out that, like, hey, I actually really dug that. Like, I, I, did, I dug the plot of Goodwill Hunting. I dug the plot of Finding Forrester. Sean Connery plays Sean Connery in an incredible, incredible Sean Connery appearance. I, I really did just enjoy the sense of space and the space and time that this movie took place in. It, it very much feels like a mid-90s uh, environment in New York City that is just really believable. And it took me a while to settle into the film, but... Once I was there, then everything kind of just felt like it was naturally flowing. Naturally flowing. There wasn't anything super jarring about um, what was happening. Everything felt logical. Yeah, I would say that I started really not liking this movie. Like the intro was like weird and sort of off-putting. And as the movie went on, like I started sort of liking it more and more. And then as the movie kind of went on, it waned a little bit more. So I think ultimately I landed in the whelmed space, but I very much had big swings throughout this movie of where I was like, okay, like I'm really into it to, okay, well maybe this movie seems ridiculous and has like a lot of holes in it that kind of don't make any sense, especially when comparing to some of the other movies we've watched in this series. One thing I do want to correct myself on is that this was not Buster Rhymes' uh, debut because uh, I've now known that Buster Rhymes was a voice in the Rugrats movie in 1998. So uh, Buster Rhymes been in the film game for a while. Put some respect on Buster's film game. That is one of the 
best facts I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> I'm going to keep that for a long time with me. I'm just trying to get through the mental image of Buster Rhymes as a Rugrats character. And all I've got is just some wild baby with braids. And I'm going to keep it that way. I don't think I'm going to look it up. I think I'm just going to yeah, live with that. I think that's his, the best possible option. Yeah, it works. I can't remember what he played. I wonder if we got that credit from a song. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like we've mentioned the opening a few times, so someone should actually explain what the opening is because it was weird, and I think we all have the same reaction to it. Yeah, so this movie opens with the character that we follow, Jamal, uh, going to school, hanging out with his friends, sort of hiding his self, hiding his smarts, which we've seen in a few other movies, specifically like a the start of Aquila and the Bee. But the the weird part to me is that it starts, it opens with Jamal playing basketball with his friends in front of their school, which I didn't realize it was connected to their school for like half the movie, with a guy just watching them from a window. And, and like quite possibly the weirdest, creepiest, like murderous vibe that I've ever seen in a movie that didn't involve a ton of murder. And it stays basically with that status quo for a while. It we really takes a minute to get to the point where we start actually figuring out what this movie is about. It's it's very peculiar. Yeah, Sean Connery is staring at them through binoculars like he's in some sort of urban safari. And it's <laughs> every bit about it was just really weird. Including the fact that the that Jamal and his friends who are playing basketball regularly understand and interact with the idea of there's just some really creepy person watching us all the time. Maybe they're a ghost. Maybe they're not. And the what what starts the action of the movie actually flowing is Jamal's friends egging him on to go up and basically do a dare and to go into that apartment. And in looking back, an uh, incredibly comical setup. Uh, <laughs> that um, so much of this movie is, is relatively grounded, and but this part was absolutely not, is he breaks into this man's apartment, he looks around, he steals a giant knife of a letter opener, puts his backpack, but ends up, you know, getting spooked and leaves his bag, and when he finally gets his bag back, it has all of his writing in it that he's been doing and hiding from his friends, you know, because trying to not show these smart... Yeah, all of his essays and his journals are, have been graded, essentially. By by this old man who took his book, book backpack, and when he when the old man yells at him and says you have to go, like you know like hey I don't want you to be here, go write five thousand words on why you should you know stay out of my apartment. Jamal actually goes home and writes five thousand words on why he should stay out of his apartment, and brings it back. And out of all the things in the movie, I don't know what's more unbelievable that. A random recluse is just going to decide to take out a red pen and functionally edit for someone for free. Or B, the the teenager takes the you should go write an essay and think about what you did and actually does it. That part is especially crazy, too, based on some events later in the movie where he's basically told to do the same thing, but by someone with authority and is just like, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do this? A major crux of the story is Jamal's refu refusal, outright refusal, to admit wrongdoing in essay form, which he's already shown us that he's perfectly good at doing. That wasn't even the part that threw me off at the beginning of the movie. I'm literally talking about the first five minutes of the movie where we had that 
montage of New York City and the dude freestyle rapping. Right. That was the part that really threw me off. That's the part that threw me off, too. I forgot all about that. Breaking the fourth wall, staring into the camera, freestyle cypher rapping. And and then also just like what eventually became a relatively standard part of the soundtrack of just some freestyle jazz floating over everything. Yeah, it was a little disconcerting. Can we like briefly, because that makes me think of the soundtrack, the the movie reused Over the Rainbow, like I don't even know how many different versions of Over the Rainbow uh, in jazz form, in like classical music form, you know, like more Hawaiian version. It was a weird choice, basically. And I never understood why it was being used. But the music in this, in this, the soundtrack of the movie was an interesting selection. Yeah, that specific part about the over the rainbow, and it's most obvious towards the end of the movie, which we'll get to a little bit later, is super duper duper jarring. And it doesn't make sense with the rest of the soundtrack, even though the rest of the soundtrack is also weird. But like those tracks specifically is like, why did you choose this now? What of the themes in this movie made you feel like these songs would work? And then also, as we mentioned, Buster Rhymes is in this movie. Buster Rhymes is not on the soundtrack. So, like, how do you mess that up? You have Buster Rhymes in his prime and you don't use him? What? I just, I don't know what you're thinking. And we've mentioned Buster multiple times. And I think it's worth noting that, like, he absolutely steals almost every scene that he's in. He has, like, he's operating on a level of magnetism that is clearly above most of the other character actors in the movie he's interacting with. He's just full on chewing out that script. And it's it was actually really fun knowing that like whenever he was on screen, it was, we were going to get something. He wasn't going to do anything monumental in the plot because he was largely an ornamental carrier character. But it was always entertaining. And like I was looking forward to seeing him pop up, you know, throughout the story. I also looked forward to him. The other characters, like the acting really wasn't that compelling. The characters weren't all that compelling. Like, I kept really wanting the mom to be Alfre Woodard. And I was like, could we not get Alfre Woodard for this role? Like, Crooklyn era Alfre Woodard was who I wanted to see as his mother and not what I got. And the actress was fine and she was very, like, normal. But it just didn't, like, feel compelling in the same way. Same thing with even Sean Connery. Bless his soul. I love Sean Connery. But I was like, this is really, because this is so similar to Goodwill Hunting, I'm like, this is really someone else's role. I'm just kind of like waiting for Robin Williams to come busting in the door and take a spot because this is his role, basically. And it was weird to have Sean Connery in that position instead. I kept wanting different characters to come take over other characters' roles and do it slightly differently. Even Buster Rhymes, I really wanted to be Tracy, you know, Morgan coming in or, and coming in and be like, that is his mind. I'm doing this role. I'm the brother character. I'm the weird brother character. So get out. Uh, what did you all think about uh, Anna Paquin? Because uh, I noticed her immediately and my brain was like i know this actress i need to figure out who she was and then when i finally made the connection i was like oh wow she was young young in this but i actually thought that she did a pretty good job of selling the relationship the the sort of budding pseudo relationship between her and jamal Mm. and uh and i because i definitely got the you know this is definitely the the spoiled rich girl who latches onto the first person outside of her bubble you know, kind of, kind of thing. Like that all came across pretty well and was pretty believable. Was it Rob Brown uh, who plays Jamal? Yeah. I thought that there's a number of times where 
he he's not super expressive in certain scenes where I was expecting him to be much more expressive. And it was kind of jarring. But there were other parts where, because unlike some other movies, not having to fast cut away for somebody playing basketball <laughs> makes it effective. So <laughs> him being able to actually, you know, actually hoop pretty well is important to the story. I think this was his first role. Was it really? And in terms of a feature. Yeah, it was his first feature role. I, I felt I felt like he 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 stood out really well and was like I really enjoyed the character whenever he was uh, doing his literature thing when he was talking about and like quote in quoting old literature and going through books I really enjoyed the character and you know he he very much leaned into the sullen sardonic uh, kind of mode later in the movie and when he was doing that he felt more alive as a as a character uh, in the early parts of the movie, it just felt like he was, you know, the person put upon in any particular situation and he was going to go here and people were going to make him do things, you know, towards the end of the movie, he starts to actually get some fire in. He, there's some moments earlier in the movie, but a bunch of those are against opponents who are not um, necessarily given the same kind of consideration or interiority. For example, his, like his battles with the, the the former star player for the basketball team whose name I can barely remember and who barely spoke any lines other than just vague insults. I have no clue why he existed in this story in this format in that way. That's one of the things I do think this movie struggles with is that there are a lot of very forgettable characters. <laughs> but I also think for a lot of these actors in this movie in particular, like outside of this movie... I don't know how many of them actually got other roles. And I'm not necessarily talking about Anna Paquin or uh, Sean Connery. And like, I'm not talking about those big actors. I'm talking about just all of these small actors. Like, I'm pretty sure that a lot of them, like, this was their only role. And that makes me wonder if they brought in a lot of non-actors just to play super small roles. I will say one of the things, kind of circling back to Anna Paquin and Rob Brown, for Anna Paquin specifically, like, I think Ryan mentioned that she did a good job playing the rich girl who's like, oh, hey, you're cool. I'm going to hang out with you. Maybe we'll have a relationship. Like, I think you're right. But I think the movie didn't want her to be that character. And so... The, the movie frames their relationship as if it's like a legit thing that would have been like happened naturally and like could have had like a real endpoint. But like from the outside watching this movie and watching how the characters are kind of playing out, it doesn't really feel like that would have been true. Like these behaviors, I don't think would have really stuck to make like a real lasting relationship. And the, the movie doesn't really want to address that. And then, Thinking about Rob for Jamal, like Jamal is kind of not a character in the first quarter of this movie. Like it's really like his his interaction with Sean Connery that really turns him into like more of a fleshed out character who starts having actions and start actually like having reactions to other characters in this movie, which is a little bit strange now that I'm thinking about it in retrospect. And and it kind of makes me wonder if the director, who we, which we haven't said, is Gus um, Van Zant. Maybe just didn't quite know exactly what he wanted to do with this story. It seemed like that early on when you look at that montage to begin the movie, and then uh, how that movie just like the inciting incident and everything. It just seemed like I don't really know what 
what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he figured it out like midway through. I feel like he wasn't sure whose story it was, right? Because I'm still not totally sure whose story it was. Like, is this mm-hmm. actually Forrester, Sean Connery's character's story? Or is this about Jamal? And at various times, you could make an argument for either. But I feel like by the end of the movie, it, it really becomes neither of them in a lot of different ways. The, if the movie is about Jamal, then it loses a lot of opportunities to flesh out Jamal as a person and also his world. And to also examine the stresses and different situations he gets into when he, as a young black man in a like a normal public school, suddenly gets pulled out of that environment and put in a fancy, uh, prominently white private school where suddenly school is more of a focus than it was for him before. And he's got a new teacher who's sort of antagonistic and the movie kind of implies potentially racist, but they never really explore it. He has this whole dynamic change that actually doesn't get explored for what it would be in that kind of experience. And I'm partially sensitive to that because I was that kid who got pulled out of public school and put into a predominantly white private school and like had to deal with that transition. None of that is actually here. Like he breezes through it. He's basically a Mary Sue for most of it because he doesn't struggle with anything in particular. Absolutely. Um, He's just happens to be a genius at literature. He happens to be a genius in apparently every subject, but you never see him earning any of that or struggling with it or even struggling with his new dynamics and the new environment that he's currently in. So it's not really Jamal's story, or if it is, we failed Jamal um, in telling it. And it's not really Forrester's story. You kind of get a little bit more about Forrester after they become friends and you hear more about his brother and his childhood and going to the games but it doesn't really go much deeper beyond that it starts to explore his agoraphobia a little bit but very lightly and it doesn't really give him a full sense of characterhood either aside from his like snappy old person remarks and correcting of you know jamal's uh jokish um language from time to time and that's really like about it right like there's a scene where Jamal convinces Forrester to go out for the first time in God knows how long. And that scene should be a much bigger part of Forrester's story. And it isn't, really. And later on, he's actually, he goes out and he seems perfectly fine. He can ride a bike and he totally remembers how. There's no issue with that. He knows where he's going. And like, why why does he know all these things if he's been a shut-in for years? So I felt like it missed an opportunity to tell either of their stories effectively because they didn't really know whose story they were trying to tell. Don't forget the drinking. The drinking is also a big part of Forrester's character. Not really, but maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I definitely think that it's there. I, I think I agree with Lauren where like the story doesn't know where it wants to go and therefore it doesn't really get there. What it does do well in this movie is that there's just a lot of vignettes that were uh, enjoyable. They didn't really start from a place of trying to highlight, you know, one of those characters' journeys. And they maybe didn't necessarily do what they needed to do in terms of plot, but the interactions and chemistry between the two were pretty solid. Like, I enjoyed watching their banter, watching them talk about uh, talk about things, wa- watching uh, Jamal, you know, get get little jabs in for this, you know, smart-ass recluse, you know, was pretty good. And also just Jamal's general resourcefulness of, hey, how did I know your birthday? I went and looked you up in the almanac. You're not even... They don't even list you with the dead people yet. That kind of stuff was fantastic. Like, I really, I think that those were probably the most enjoyable parts of the movie. And considering how much space they take up in the film, it's probably good that that's the case. Because I, when you think about the other interactions in the film, you know, him and Claire, Anna Paquin's character, most of their interactions are just charged with standard teen drama stuff. 
he technically has a male friend, the 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 guy who looks like a great value, Leo DiCaprio. I don't know how else to put it. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, sir. If you're listening to this podcast, you have my deepest apologies for calling you a great value, Leo DiCaprio. But you need to blame the director because they didn't use you right. Yeah, yeah so much potential, so great value, Leo DiCaprio. And uh, and yeah, I, I, Cole Rich. I remember his name because it was part of the plot. But there was, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like all so many of those things were there, and we never really explore. I mean, I will say that a bunch of the teachers in the in, in in the story were at best benevolent racists and at worst like actively antagonistic racists. There was a lot of, you know, like, oh, you know, did do you think that he could have done this work on his own? He oh please, he's a basketball player. I don't I'm trying to think about how to phrase it. The way that that teacher said basketball player might as well have had an heart had a hard R. Um, <laughs> so like, I don't think that, and, and remember kids here on an academic scholarship and like, there was just at no point, any consideration that he could be as smart as he is, even though he took these tests, the state test at his crappy school, even though anyone could have just asked to see any of the billion journals this kid walks around with, or the fact that he's like a walking literary encyclopedia, but we, we don't even really get much resolution to those arcs except for Sean Connery telling one of them to suck it by the end essentially and i don't know like we've had multiple movies i think in the past few episodes that really don't give the antagonist much thought past a cardboard cutout of a of a villain yeah the the situation with the school is is so challenging because like lauren mentioned they glossed over any sort of rough edges of jamal having to get adjusted to the school like it's it's literally I decided to go to the school and then now like everything is fine and I'm in class except for this one instructor. It's it's a weird transition. And then it's weird that that one instructor has such a problem with him for no honestly logical reason. And and speaking to Ryan's point about the academic scholarship, it kind of feels like every character in the movie forgot that that happened um, because based on events that we'll talk about a little bit later in the spoiler section. The school doesn't seem to treat him like that. They sure treat him a, a lot more like they brought him there to play basketball, which was only barely mentioned in the inciting incident that got him to the school to begin with. So there's definitely a lot kind of going on here that's a little bit weird. And I, I want to hone in on the part of the movie that I also liked, which is the relationship between Jamal and William. I, I think if nothing else in this movie the fact that they got Rob Brown and Sean Connery together for, I don't know, an hour to just like act together and Sean Connery to be ornery and Rob Brown to like deal with him. That by itself almost makes this movie worth watching because that part is really good. Like their relationship makes some sense. There's some parts in it where I was like, I feel like maybe some people should be asking some questions about where your son is. But outside of that, like, I, I think that their banter and stuff is really, really good. And it kind of feels like they wanted to make that movie, but they were like, well, we can't, we don't know how we want to get these two characters together. And so they basically ex like try to write a movie around. Let's just have these two characters talk and be fun together with everything else. Maybe not really working. Yeah. It was like a bad version of the movie in that regard. Where like yeah. oh, I actually had like oh yeah this is like a decent cool plot we know whose story it is all that stuff and then also this relationship with this kid is kind of fun 
And then this is like, well, the relationship between William and uh, Jamal is great, but everything else just kind of happens, and we're cool with that. So I do want to move on to a couple other things. I, I, I want to introduce a sex segment called uh, Finding Facts, where I just go over a couple of the details of this movie. So this movie was made on a $43 million budget, actually did pretty well at $80 million in the box office in 2000. It's just shy over two hours long at, at two hours and 16 minutes and is quite possibly the most important movie to the 2000s era. Not for really anything that happens in the movie, but I have to absolutely call out the line, you're the man now, dog, which if anyone was a part of the Internet from early 2000s to 2010, this was your life, and this movie basically made the internet of the 2000s happen. So I just we can't go any farther without really talking about whoever wrote that line wrote quite possibly the most important single sentence to the internet that we've ever seen. I, I, I honestly think that like for for younger listeners and also possibly for older listeners, like we're talking about a truly foundational meme, a, a meme that launched a thousand ships. There were the the website you're the man now dog ended up with countless uh tiled backgrounds full of full of funny images sound clips and then words layered over the top which we now understand to be one of our primary ways of communicating in 2020 so much of this can be traced back to this throwaway line by Sean Connery and Finding Forrester that it's it's one of the weirdest butterfly flaps his wings and the world changes things that I could possibly imagine. And yes, like it, it's hard to overstate how ridiculous that is. And I don't know whether the website still works because Flash... Um, oh, it does. <laughs> it's been converted to HTML5. So, so we have preserved history to this day. in order for all of you to be able to go experience it in the way that Jamal would have on his 486 PC at the library. You should go check out You're the Man Now Dog. It's amazing because they, the creators of this movie, clearly didn't know what they had because the, the line is so throwaway. They probably thought they were so clever. But to give a little bit of history behind You're the Man Now Dog, um, it was created in 2001 and the creator registered the website immediately after watching the trailer for this movie, which apparently had that line in it for some reason. I didn't watch the trailer as we were preparing to watch this movie, but I want to go back and see why did they possibly include that scene in the trailer? Because it has no bearing on the rest of the movie. Kind of get the young people out to see it, speaking their language. Uh, no, that's why they, no, that's why they uh, cast Lil Zane in it, even though he only had like two sentences. This, this was like the most gold. And I, I just love that none of it was intentional and all of it is amazing. So for any listener, it, like I said, the, the website is still up, ytmd.com. If you're going to go, you can find the original meme. The original meme is still there and quite possibly the most important meme, or at least the most important to my circle of groups. The Jean-Luc Picard song still exists. Just search for Jean-Luc Picard. You will be in for a three to four minute treat. This is what show notes are for. We can add these horribly misguided links 
Uh, okay, so now that we've moved on to literally the most important part about this movie. This is like, can I just say that like Oscar winning screenwriters and Pulitzer Prize winning authors everywhere <laughs> are sobbing into their like cognacs right now because all, all of the time and effort and eloquence of generations put into their works and yet nothing will be as influential or as memorable as You're the Man Now, Dog. Delivered by Sean Connery in this particular movie. It's just a tragedy. It's really what it is. Hey, what it means is you can't plan for excellence. <laughs> it's a Shakespearean tragedy. Very not. Excellence. Let's call it that. Sure. Oh, okay. So um, one thing I want to talk a little bit more about is the cinematography for this movie, which even I noticed was a little bit weird. Um, it was okay, terrible. So good. Let's call good, it. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to pass judgment as a as a non movie person, but every time I was like, "Why are they filming this from the other side of a window? Like, why would you be looking through glass and have the camera through the glass?" But um, I I, I want to get some of your opinions on what you thought about the way this was filmed, edited, and and so on. The cinematographer had a lot of ideas, like capital I ideas for things that they wanted to do that they thought were cool and you know ed editing in some ways is kind of like you know like you you edit a movie like you edit an outfit you add all the stuff you think about doing and you take off a couple accessories uh before you go outside they did not take the accessories off and so like the shaky cam footage mounted on the front of a new york subway train that literally almost made me sick uh <laughs> trying to watch was one of those moments where I was just like, oh, they're really just going like, hey, you know what would be cool if um, for a lot of these shots and most of them don't pull it off. There, There is there's one of those poorly advised shots that I do think actually kind of worked, which is there's a scene in uh, Yankee Stadium near the the emotional climax of the movie where, you know, they circle around both of them standing in the middle of the mound having this deep conversation. And I think it works but it goes on way too long. And almost every shot that I thought was good was then ruined by like overstaying its welcome or a ridiculously jarring cut. There were a number of things where I thought that my copy of the movie was wrong because the, the cuts were so jarring that I, that I literally just thought that like I had a bad file or it was a bad stream. And I like rewound and went like, okay, no, I didn't just, you know, black out for two seconds and everybody moved this cut was that rough. Yeah. The only thing I hated more than the cinematography, which I hated a lot, like a lot, uh, was the editing. That was like one of the notes when I was watching this and taking notes like that. I repeated most often, like, why did that cut happen? Why did that cut happen? Why didn't that cut happen? Why did that cut happen? Like, I just have a lot of questions basically about what the, the goals were behind the editing in this case, because it was, for a movie where the director is, you know, his one of his big breakout movies that he directed was Goodwill Hunting. Uh, it was a weird, a weird disappointment. The production values of this particular film, like I don't expect a film like this to have amazing cinematography, right? It's not into the Spider Verse. It's not going to be something like uh, the Last Black Man in San Francisco, where there are really interesting, you know, theatrical components to the cinematography. I don't expect a lot, and I'm still disappointed. And that that made me really sad because so much of the film like does really like encourage you to feel like you should have an interesting framing for these characters 
and not the close-up side shots that don't really mean much. And it's really because in Moonlight, they actually did a lot of these like upper, like close angled shots that worked really well for the story. And in this, it, none of it worked, in my opinion, at all. And the shots through the glass that James mentioned also kept coming up and also didn't make any sense. And it just added this weird brownness to so many of the scenes that didn't do any any favors to the film at all. Yeah, it it falls flat. <laughs> like, it, it's everything... The editing and the cinematography of this movie do the story or what little story there is there, no service. It all kind of falls flat, but... Like, yeah, the color is bad. <laughs> everything about it just kind of feels like everything kind of blends in together. I don't watch this movie for... I'll put it like that. If you want something like that, like, go watch Moonlight. Uh, go watch Spider-Verse. Go watch some of the other movies we've uh, discussed, uh, you know, in this podcast. Go elsewhere. Yeah, I don't really have much for that. It's just not good. Double plus ungood. There, There's a couple moments where I felt like, and I, I'm asking you all just to confirm because it literally was driving me crazy. It felt like there were cuts that literally ended up repeating lines because they cut from one camera angle to another and didn't like actually clean it up. And it happened at least three times. One of them was in the basketball game. And there, there's so much craft put into the words that the characters use. Like, I think that like the, the script itself, it, you know, like had a bunch of strengths in terms of the literary allegories that they pull through them talking about William's work and the slow unveiling of his story like that stuff really worked for me and a lot of those edits really let you down for being able to feel that impact yeah and then the set design also too for like the gym that they were in for like you know basketball actually matters to the school but they got this tiny elementary school gym <laughs> yeah that part's realistic for a private school I'm let that one go. <laughs> but also too it's just like even if High school, or even if basketball matters to a small private school, they'll usually have a gym with like where they can actually fit a set of bleachers in and isn't just like a bunch of chairs along the sideline. Fair. You know, we actually rented our gym from another school because we didn't actually have our own building. Um, our school did that for football. Yeah. So it really does like depend. Like we rented our building from another school entirely, including the cafeteria and gym. But my theory going on right now is that they spent all of their budget on Sean Connery. And so they actually had to use like Gus Van Sant's like nephew, who was like a freshman in his film program somewhere. Not a, like not at a good California school, maybe, you know, like a Texas, something like that. Uh, and that's the editing. That's fine. You know, <laughs> using it as a learning school. It was a learning project instead. I, I think that like, yeah, student work um, is definitely the... The level in yeah. which we're seeing, um, although I've probably seen better at Lightworks. Side note, um, you should go check out the University of Michigan Student Film Competition Lightworks whenever that happens, because it's usually worth your time. <laughs> as well as the students in that competition <laughs> before. <laughs> I didn't say it was great. I just said it was worth your time. But I, I think that um, one, of the, one of the things that I really think about when considering the the you talked about like do they spend all the movie on Sean all the money on Sean Connery? It feels like a reverse of Lawrence Fishburne in Akeel and the Bee, where he clearly jumped deep discount <laughs> to make this thing happen. He he took he like took way less than his normal rate. You know, like I feel better about that movie the further we get away from it. 
of like looking back at it and going like, bro, it didn't have a bunch of these problems. It tried to do some of the same things. It did it with a younger character, which meant that some of these plots went differently. And you could take piece for piece the speech about like, don't you speak that way in here? You know, when you're in here with me, you speak proper English. You could interstitch those so that each of those characters are in each other's movies and they would go off without a hitch. Yeah, I also thought about Aquila a lot in this. I was just going to say, I, I mentioned a problem with that um, in Aquila when, when it came up, the you don't speak like this. Boy, was it a lot worse in this movie. Um, I, it, it felt yes. a lot less earned in this movie. Where it's like, and, and, and when that line happens, it hasn't come up before, and it's a good ways into their relationship. So it's really, really out of nowhere in a way that's like, no, actually, I don't I don't think you earned this. Like, you could just take that line out. And actually, I'd feel a lot better about you if you did. Well, it was weird because it happened to the relationship. And also, at the beginning of the relationship, they have a whole discussion where Sean Connery has basically been baiting Jamal by making race-based comments that Jamal pushes back on. And his uh, excuse is that he was trying to see how much Jamal would or would not take. And so even, like, those kinds of interactions were never really explored at all and just kind of like swept under the rug but i, I will say i also thought about Aquila a lot in this because i feel like this movie did Aquila a lot of favors because they are so similar in their overall plot and structure and what's happening but this movie lacks the charm that Aquila had and i think part of the difference is also that Aquila felt like a movie where like people really wanted to be there and it made them happy to make it just like it made us happy to watch it and in this movie aside from the sort of like chemistry that Jamal and Forrester have, which I agree is excellent. No one else in the movie is all that excited to be there except for Buster Rhymes, who's just excited to be anywhere, right? Anywhere at all. And so I feel like even like towards, even some of the more emotional parts of this movie, like you don't really get that same kind of like happy feeling about how this has worked out. It always still feels a little bit disappointing. Speaking of uh, some of the emotional parts of the movie, as we're getting talking, I kind of want to move into spoiler territory so we can talk a little bit more about some of the concrete events in the latter part of the movie. So if you want to watch Finding Forrester and you you don't want to be spoiled, this is a part to pause. Go watch the movie. Come back. We'll talk a little bit more about the ending. If you want to just know the history of You're the Man Now, Dog, you can skip like maybe 30 minutes into the movie. It's it's in there in that range somewhere. So go find it. You can watch it on Amazon Prime for free, which, by the way, before we get into the spoiler territory, if you're going to watch it on Amazon Prime for free, be prepared for the worst placement of two minute <laughs> oh my commercials God. you can <laughs> you will possibly ever experience. Um there are definitely some parts where an emotional moment happens in this movie, and then there's a two-minute commercial immediately afterwards. For me, so it, for me, it was just like be- dramatic emotional tension, you know, like a, a story climax about to happen, and then two minutes of Charmin ads for toilet paper. And, and hey, it, good ads, and th- they're amazing. good ads. Charmin it's, has it's good like ads. When you're watching YouTube, and it tells you that like there's going to be an ad coming at five, four, three, two, one. It just cuts. It's jarring and like just mean spirited how those ads were. Um, it felt like they were like not a single one of them happened in a place where you wouldn't have minded them to be there. Every single one of them mm. felt like somebody who just like had a grudge against um, viewers of this movie and wanted to insert the most discomfort and go, you should have spent three dollars to get 
the rental version of this. Yeah, so spend the three dollars, but uh, it is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, so we're gonna hop over into spoiler territory. So one thing before we get to the very very end of the movie, there's one thing I specifically want to call out because I want you guys' opinion on it because I didn't understand why it was in this movie. So when Jamal is finding out the sort of history of Forrester before Forrester's birthday, there's a pretty long scene where he's flipping through a photo book. Do you what is the significance of those photos? Do you guys know? Because I didn't. They're supposed to foreshadow or sort of hint that Forrester had a brother. Okay, that's what I thought they were trying to show. But because they didn't do the thing where they're like, we're going to show a young Sean Connery and then clearly show the connection to these kids. My immediate thought was, oh, he had kids at some point and they like died or something, Um, which is not the way the movie decided to go. And so that was very jarring to me to be like, okay, there's these old photos. We're going to find this crazy reveal that like the second book was about his family and they like his wife and his, their kids died in a crazy accident or something. And like that didn't really happen. So I'm, it's interesting that, that, that that's sort of what they were trying to do, because personally, I didn't feel like they did a very good job. Yeah, the movie has a lot of moments like that um, where early on in the movie like a seemingly throwaway line or you'll see a character do something and it's supposed to like be the setup or a foreshadow to some, you know, resolution or some event that is yet to come. Like that was part of the thing with uh, William uh, sort of race baiting Jamal was that was that idea that he's going to have to deal with this later in the movie. Well, basically, the movie has a lot of moments like that where it's trying to foreshadow or set up uh, something off of like a little line or a piece of text, actually not even a piece of text, or like a little moment where he's like flipping through a photo, photo book, uh, a photo book or something like that. And another example of that would be William race baiting Jamal because William is supposed to know that Jamal's going to have to deal with that as he begins to get better with his writing. It had a lot of it has a lot of moments like that early on in the movie that are very much hidden. I didn't catch that part for the race baiting, but I did I did manage to catch a bunch of the foreshadowing about his family. William's keys have his brother's dog tags on them. And those show up relatively early in the movie. And there's a conversation that they have in the first third when Jamal is uh, sharing with William his stupid English teacher's um, ideas about what William's book was about. And he was going like, oh, yeah, you know, I think I clearly think that this movie, like this book was about um, someone else. My teacher thinks the book was just written about you, but but I think it was about someone else. And then you see the the keys and the dog tags. It's like, OK, so that's written. You know, it was talking about the the book was focused on the the trauma about like going to war um as one of the one of the themes i saw the dog tags and put two two together that like okay he lost somebody close he's keeping their dog tags i think that the photo album part was the only part of it that i got other, other than like this is probably his sibling uh because he's always together with someone in these things was the yankee stadium bit and then making the connection to his brother the scalper and wondering if that was what they were going to going to do and getting some payoff so there was some satisfaction for me getting to the detective my way to 
where the plot was going to go at multiple different points of the story. Um, but I think that that's actually one of the places where the failings of the cinematography really stand out because if you had better direction, you could better direction, better camera work, you could handle those foreshadowing bits with the kind of focus that they're designed for and not just have somebody like me who's a detective junkie and is always looking for gotcha clues. Everyone else should also get to see the foreshadowing um, instead of making it as hard as humanly possible to figure out. And just to quickly circle back to the William race baiting thing to tie uh, tied up sort of people that have seen it and didn't quite uh, see it. Uh, in that conversation, William drops the line that, oh, Jamal, you want to use two words, but you're not because you want me to help you. Uh, and then later on in the movie, Jamal actually gives uh, William those two words, you know, fuck and you. Emphatically. And yeah, pretty emphatically. And it was in a situation where he was probably de dealing with some, actually, no, probably he was dealing with some pretty bad racism regarding his academic work and his uh, work on the basketball court. But luckily, Jamal took the, the value of stop snitching from the neighborhood and preserved his relationship <laughs> with William through his absolute refusal to snitch at any given point in time. Yeah, that was <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, speaking of, so as we are in spoiler territory, let's go ahead and reveal that Jamal is charged with plagiarism because he wrote a paper a story that was based on a story that william had published but william didn't tell jamal he had published and basically the first paragraph and the title are the same while the rest of the story is completely different or at least what we are being told or have been told is completely different and so jamal is now facing expulsion but only after he wins them the basketball tournament um, is he's facing possible expulsion uh, for plagiarizing this story. Uh, and the uh, school says that if he has permission from William to use it, then it's everything's fine. But he didn't want to give William up. And so he is possibly being threatened to be thrown out of his school. That honestly, he doesn't he doesn't owe them anything. So, I mean, I think he would have been fine back at his old school, but that's a different point. And the movie is resolved with William finally coming out of his shell, so to speak, and going and speaking at the school and reading, being having a surprise impromptu reading at this writing competition um, where he wows the entire crowd. This is a point that I want to point out how bad the music is in this movie, is that we have... The lead up of what's supposed to be a grand moment, William Forrester reappearing in what, as far as anyone knows, the first time in 50 years, possibly, or at least the first time in a very long time. He appears at this school. He's reading this work that's apparently his first written work that anyone has really experienced. Uh, Sean Connery reads, I don't know, maybe three lines, and then the rest of it has music playing over it. And uh, can someone tell me why? They thought that was a good it's idea. It's a movie about writing. There must have been some reason. I don't understand. <laughs> because they didn't have anyone who could write something so amazingly, emotionally well-crafted that it would bring the audience conceivably to tears. That's why they did it. It was obvious, but it was a cheap trick. And again, in a movie yeah. about writing, spend the extra money to get someone to write you a beautiful piece of like a beautiful paragraph, right? Didn't need to be a whole lot. 
but it was super obvious because the music swell was so like <laughs> loud and you never hear what he actually says. Also, too, the thing that I hate most about that scene, I, I love this movie, but I really hate that scene. <laughs> Uh, and Sean Connery kind of uh, William says it earlier in the movie where it's like, what does having what is reading your story in uh, front of a bunch of people have to do with writing? <laughs> it's just that moment of just like you have a room full of teenagers with some author that they probably thought was dead, with the exception of Claire, who's a big fan of the book or of his one book. Nobody else really cares. <laughs> Although, I mean, Claire was doing her best to flirt with Jamal through the entire process. Um, also, in front of her dad, which was kind of weird. I found Claire problematic. Understatement. Yeah. Um, Claire was going to get my man caught up because he was like, so Claire's father was the head of the board who was the benevolent racist to the, um, to the malevolent racist of the English teacher. And that if, as long as he came home with the state championship, he was going to make everything go away and like take care of all the stuff. You know, we'll just, we'll just handle all that. But you know, this is a place that likes winning is a phrase that he said a couple of times that stuck out to me. Um, one of the things that I don't think we, the, the movie didn't give enough time looking at is that I fully believe that Jamal threw the game. He loses the, you know, they, they, they're down by one at the final seconds. He gets fouled. He misses both free throws. Earlier in the movie, he has a free throw contest with the top player from the the private school, and they shoot free throws until one of them misses, and Jamal gets through 50 in a row. He doesn't miss free throws, as established. So, like, him missing two in a row, and he literally looks at, like, the girl he's, like, kind of into, but whose dad is eh, scary, and look at the racist teacher. He just threw that game and just said, screw you all. Like, I don't need any of you. And that part got absolutely very little interiority. That, that, that interior. It got very little shine for what kind of decision he made in that moment and what kind of things he was willing to say and do. And that he was going to force them to show their, uh, show their ignorance. And he was going to force them to play their racist card and not rely on his basketball skill to get him out of the situation. It was like actually a, a fascinating character moment. And we get like almost nothing around it. We got William asking him something that was deemed not to be a dinner question or something like not that. A soup Whatever question. the line was that they were. Oh, a soup question? Yeah. Not exactly a soup question. Yeah. I felt like one of the big, one of my big problems with the climax of this movie was that it was a bunch of moments like that where it was just like we don't really get the payoff that we get in a lot of these moments, except for getting to see William ride his bike through New York City. Yeah, that part really bothered me because, again, agoraphobic, only left the house once in decades, and yet totally fine riding his bike through town, knows exactly where to go, no big deal. It was a weird it was a weird choice for the character they'd established. But I will say, for I agree with Andre's point about the lack of payoff in a lot of cases. It was there for the basketball moment, which I agree should have been a much bigger moment for folks to realize what Jamal was giving up and why. But it's also true for the very end of the film, when you find out that William Forrester has gone back to his ancestral Scotland, or you know, his homeland, to visit, and he's died there. And so, like, he and Jamal never see each other again after that. He dies off screen, and you find out from none other than Matt Damon showing up uh, 
I howled at the screen. That was the most howled at the screen. That was. That is to date the most random Matt Damon sighting I have ever seen. I was like, I was trying to figure out for at least the first two minutes. Like, is this a is this a crossover? Which Matt Damon character is this, and what what happened? Yeah, it was. It felt very much like okay, Matt Damon owes me a favor. Let me call him in for this one scene. So uh, weird. Speaking of something I talked about earlier with the commercial breaks, just I want to very quickly mention how bad they were. So this specific example is Matt Damon says he died. Commercial break. Like <laughs> yeah. literally. <laughs> it's like network TV. Uh, it, it, so we go to, and, and this also shows how the, how bad the editing can, can be in this movie. So it goes to Matt Damon saying he died and then commercial break. Then we come back from the commercial and, uh, Jamal is walking into William's house. And I was like, Oh no, like clearly something happened in the commercial break. And like, we missed some transitional dialogue or something. So I backed the movie up and read it, watched it again. It triggered the exact same commercial break and found that there was no additional information. <laughs> so this was ugh, pay the three dollars to watch this movie. It's amazing. So he, you know, like he comes into the apartment. He's followed by his brother, uh, Busta, um, and his mother. Um, and, you know, they, they, he walks through the place and. You know, like it's there was there was a moment where I remembered when we watched the last black man in San Francisco, where when they went to see the house in the end of the movie and it felt like a different space because, you know, uh, there wasn't in it, it, you know, it was all lit up and everything. And that's what I was kind of expecting, but it really just didn't give me that. It gave me uh we're going to film this from one camera angle we never use, which is walking into the house, walk, walking into the, the, the apartment. He goes and he looks at the dirty window because. Uh, Gus is obsessed with dirty windows in this. That's what he associates with New York. And he looks out the window to the basketball court, and we get this um, uh, uh, another Somewhere Over the Rainbow sighting for the soundtrack. This time, it is the Hawaiian uh, Jake Shimabukuro uh, version of it. And I don't know why I know that. Um, but, uh, you know, he goes out there, and he goes, and he plays basketball with his old friends, and like looks up and goes like, oh well, I can't, you know, I don't see him in the window anymore. They, they, you know, the camera pans back. You see the box that he left him. You know, Jamal sits down and reads the letter that William left him, which he opens with the giant knife letter opener that he stole in the early part of the, or he tried to steal in the early part of the movie. Which, if anyone saw someone saw a black child on the street with a six-inch-long ivory-handled dagger. <laughs> sitting on a basketball, I don't think that would have ended well. It was just really bizarre to just see him, like, sitting sadly holding a dagger, reading, uh, you know, a heartfelt letter from William about, like, how much he changed his life in the past year. And it's William Forrester's second book that, that is completely written and ready to go, and it says, like, forward to be written by Jamal Wallace. And I, that part actually got me a little bit in the, like, oh, you know, like a, a planned succession uh, thing was was nice and because jamal definitely lights him up earlier in the movie about um all all the all the things that he's written and have been locked in a file cabinet and never be seen again the actual 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 like end of the movie the last scene where we see that book and the basketball thing i i liked that part 
for some reason, the letter to me, though, didn't feel right. Because, like, I liked the sentiment that they were trying to present. And this might be a problem with the editing, too. But it just felt like as Jamal was finished reading that letter, he didn't have an opportunity to really, like, react. He finishes reading that letter. And then it's like, and now we're playing basketball. And now the movie's over. You know, if I were reading a letter from a friend that I'd had a life-changing experience with, this was the last thing they had ever written to me. I feel like I would have had some sort of reaction to that, but they just chose not to give Jamal a reaction to that for whatever reason, which I thought was a little bit strange. I mean, it kind of fit. He doesn't have reactions to most things, most of the movies. So why <laughs> would he start now? Even in this triumphant moment where William is reading his letter and he knows it is his letter in front of, you know, his English class to, you know, just screw over that crappy English teacher one more time. Because William apparently just like has a knack for, you know, getting under that spe- that specific man's skin, um, uh, and you know, like he's reading this thing, and you see everybody reacting and how big of a deal it is, and the camera's just constantly on Jamal's like nonplussed face through all of it, and it's really weird for him not to react there, like when he has he has more fire when he's accused of plagiarism than like when he's actually redeemed or proved correct and he literally just like walks out the room at the end yeah calling out that specific part of the scene where william leaves and he just and jamal leaves with him thinking back if the teacher hadn't stopped william they william would have never said that that was written by jamal that's one of the last things he says to the teacher that they have like an entire dialogue about i don't even remember what to be honest And then the very end of their dialogue about whatever they're talking about, he's like, oh, yeah. And actually, Jamal just wrote this thing that y'all were just praising. I feel like if the if the point was to show that Jamal was clearly a talented writer, you would have wanted to do that on your own. You wouldn't have needed a character to prompt you to present that information. And I think that's what felt a little bit weird to me about it. Right. Well, in the prompt, the faculty that the professor gives him, he asks what brought him down here. So, like, stripping back to the fact that this man hasn't been seen in public for, like, 50 years and hasn't anything else. He shows up at the school, and he reads what they think is one of his first original works in a while that he's reading publicly. And so the teacher asks, like, what brought you here? Like, what to what do we owe this honor, basically? And that's when he started saying that it's because, you know, he essentially owes a debt to Jamal because he kept a secret and he wanted to do something similar to him. But, like, the point... Is that if the teacher had never bothered to ask, why are you here? Which is a perfectly good question in you know, that particular event. But if he hadn't asked that, yeah, I don't know what like would have actually happened after that. Would he have just made a statement as he walked out the door or not at all? He doesn't seem to have a plan. He obviously goes there with a plan, but he never actually seems to. He only executes it on, on accident. Yeah, and it actually makes that bike scene at the end all the more weird. Because if he's that uncomfortable where he can't just say, oh, yeah, I'm here for Jamal, unless he's prompted, then, again, why would he be riding his bike through a busy New York City? Yeah, it would make sense, like, the earlier scene where he's, you know, riding around at night when no one's really out. Like, yeah, that part could make sense, but through the busy, like, Manhattan traffic, riding your bike, first off, riding your bike from the Bronx to Manhattan, and then just riding through, uh busy manhattan traffic during the day my really morbid answer is that now that we know that william died of cancer and that he might have known that he had it maybe he was just like well this will be faster i'm going to bike without a helmet in new york city 
Well, I sorry don't, everybody. I don't want to end on that note. So um, <laughs> <laughs> before we wrap up, does anyone have any last things that they want they they want to say about Finding Forrester? This is still one of my favorite movies. That isn't to say it's not flawless. Uh, there are a lot of flaws in this movie. One of the biggest ones being that you're expected to, as an audience member, excuse a lot of things, uh, a lot of things about the characters and a lot of events as, you know, chalk, the, you know, interpret and chalk them up to different like behaviors and things like that. But I still just love that relationship between William and Jamal and uh, also Buster Rose's character as his older brother. <laughs> Is like there are a lot of things about this movie I do find quite charming, and that's what really makes it worth. Plus, I have a lot of really great family memories associated with this movie, so I love it because of that. You know, I'll actually build off of that. Like, I I, I took a lot of time this episode kind of ragging on this movie, but I would watch this movie again. I, I have no qualms with watching this again. It would be one of those things that's like... It's on TV back when I watched TV and I would just leave it on and I'd be like, yeah, you know, there's parts of this movie that I think are really cool and there's character moments that I think are interesting and, I, and there's some dialogue in it that I think is good. It's just it's a weird movie to sit down and watch all the way through because we, and, and to think about because when you do, you start noticing like a bunch of kind of problems with it. This isn't quite like. Marshall for me, which was a movie we watched earlier that also had some similar, not similar, but had some editing and cinematography problems. That's not a movie I think I would watch again. But this movie is one that I enjoyed enough of that I, I would watch a second time. I think for me, so there's a there's a scene in this movie where Jamal is walking down the street at night and he passes a car that is on fire, just parked to the side and burning on fire. And a police car rolls past him and they kind of like look at him and then keep going. And it's a weird moment because <laughs> I don't know why the car is on fire or what the interaction with the police is really there for. But that basically summarizes my feelings about this film. That said, if I was like surfing through TV and there was nothing else on, yeah, I would probably like keep it on because it's kind of an offensive. Like I do enjoy the the back and forth between um sean connery's character and the main character so yeah it's fine but i would basically treat it as like i'm walking past a burning car i'm not really gonna ask questions about it just eyes forward yeah i i, I think that my overall feelings on the film are that i i did enjoy the sense of time and place of like here's you know the story that's very this, it's a very new york story in a lot of different ways i, I think that those conversations between william and jamal will stick with me especially when talking about like there, there's a bunch of them that were just enjoyable vignettes that could be lifted out of the movie entirely and enjoyed on their own. Um, them talking about the rules of writing and when to break the rules of writing is like an actual fantastic example of that, that I kind of want to show students because I think it was just like really effective at getting across that, that, that kind of distance. I, I really, the more I think about it, the more I'm frustrated for a movie about writing we didn't get to actually see much of it, of, of the actual writing. We saw a lot of cover pages typed up and written. We didn't get to actually experience the skill of either William or Jamal, and it's central to the film. And I feel like if those things had happened, I could feel even more strongly about, you know, the characters. Jamal clearly expresses himself differently in writing than he does verbally or facially, because he's not really expressive that way either. But 
you know, the movie does a good job making me believe in that relationship. And therefore, I feel like it's pretty okay. And I like the idea of a reclusive author taking his one chance to pass on the torch and actually doing it. You know, he had he could have just ended up being, you know, another, you know, dying in his apartment and people finding all of his work at the end or barely knowing who he was. But instead, he got to, you know, pass that torch on to a worthy successor and like actually invite him into his work by naming him as the person writing the forward. You know, so, you know, just imagining William Forrester on the other side, reaching back and saying, you're the man now, dog. You're the man now. And with that, <laughs> this has been the Black Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for making it to this point of the episode. Next time, we're going to be watching us. So be prepared to be spooked. So I hope y'all have a good evening. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I murder bees. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the trinity. Good people weed the memories. These are the